Thank you very much for that. I've been here for over 12 years now and had covered a bunch of stuff in New York and the region before I came here. It was my first foreign assignment, and I now have a whole family here, which is why I've been so long that I still feel very American. And uh, one of the first things, I'm just going to sort of talk a little bit. Uh, a little bit of background and then maybe talk about kind of the events of this last year, which have been so extraordinary. Um, I mean, it is an incredible time to be here, to see what's going on um, with the real recalibration of the relationship between the press, um, the government, and the population, I think. From my point of view, um, I think what's happened is people have finally, in this last six months or so, began, begun to state what has been obvious to everybody, which is that the tabloid press here, especially, has been shockingly irresponsible, using methods that are underhanded and not good journalism. And people have sort of allowed that to go on for years and years because they were afraid of the tabloid press. It was a kind of cost of doing business for members of the of the political class and, and other classes of, and, and other uh, sort of public figures. And they've been afraid to say anything. And so we're getting this incredible moment where suddenly all this stuff is coming out. And the stuff that's coming out isn't new. Everyone knew this was happening, but no one could really say it. Kind of like the emperor's new clothes, except no one could talk about the clothes the emperor was wearing, I suppose. Um, you know, there's fears now that with all this investigation into the press and debate about it, um, things could go too far in the other direction, that there could be too much regulation, all this criticism could stifle the press here, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, one of the problems with, with that second part of it is, from an American point of view, is, is to see how poorly the press is um, how much everyone hates the press here. And they did this even before all these things happened. It's a much harder place to be a journalist, I think, than the United States. There's no First Amendment freedom of the press. There's no sense of the public's right to know. The government is a lot more secretive and a lot more obstructive when you try and get even basic information. And I think that's one of the reasons that the press has been so tawdry in many ways and so focused on these scandals and sex you know, things and titillation because it's often hard to do the sort of hard-hitting stories that would be a matter of course in more open societies. Um, so just to take a step back, when you first come here, I'm sure you all notice this too, as a kind of journalist and someone who loves the newspapers, you just notice how many papers there are. Um, 11 daily newspapers, you know, ranging from the rock bottom to the much more uh, responsible ones. Um, and you notice also how they're all unashamedly, unashamedly um, pursuing their own agenda. You know, they're biased and they're not afraid to be biased. So it took me a little while to kind of negotiate the, uh, the landscape here in, in that, for example, if let's say there, there, there was a proposal for welfare reform, you know, new, new legislation, that piece of news would be reported completely differently. In, in depending on what newspaper. So the Guardian might report it from the point of view of, isn't this terrible, everybody will be denied their welfare benefits. And the Daily Telegraph might report it, you know, finally the government is doing something about all these cheats and scroungers. And that's kind of written into the way they report it. So I think as a, if you're trying to cover this country, you have to read sort of six newspapers and take a kind of happy medium to find out what really happened. And that's interesting because, of course, in the United States, um, 
There's really an inviolate wall between opinion and news. So that we could be writing stuff that our opinion pages would be completely opposed to. Well, we're, first of all, we're not allowed to take a slant. Um, so we would never, the opinion pages would never come to us and say, you know, we really want to push this welfare bill, so find a lot of sob stories about welfare recipients. They just go their own way and we go our own way. And if they don't like an investigation of some company or something, that's just too bad. And in this country, that would be harder to do. I think the news pages and the opinion pages really work hand in hand and often are in the same newsroom together. We're on like a totally different floor and we never see them, we never see the advertisers. It's really kind of church and state. Um, and the second thing you notice here, of course, is the massive uh, divide between the broadsheets and the tabloids and how, you know, the tabloids, I don't know, you know, when I first got here and I saw somebody reading The Sun on the, on the subway, on the tube, and I was like, why is someone reading pornography, you know, first thing in the morning? You know, you see this naked woman on page three, and it's completely acceptable. Everybody thinks it's fine, or they don't pay attention. It's just, you know, it's sort of shocking to see something like that. You know, we in the United States have tabloids, but they make, you know, even the Post, which is America, looks like kind of the Encyclopedia Britannica compared to some of the here, you know, it's just completely bizarre to see the kind of things they cover. And also you just notice the different kind of stories they cover, the different audiences they try to attract, and you notice how they don't seem often to be particularly accurate. And I think that, that holds true sometimes with the, the broadsheets too. I think that there's less of a focus on completely getting your facts right. There's this notion that, well, we can fix it later or it doesn't really matter. And I think there's an odd duality in journalist self-perception here. On the one hand, it's a sort of half grandiose and half self-loathing. So on the one hand, they feel that they want to set the agenda and that the government should dance to their tune and everyone should take them seriously. And on the other hand, if they're called on things, they'll just say, well, it was just a newspaper. So for example, if you read, which is a very instructive book, Piers Morgan's memoirs, as when he was editor of the uh, Mirror, he spends a lot of time talking about um, his relationship with Downing Street and with the Prime Minister. Um, he's constantly in this book calling them to yell at them because they didn't give him some exclusive or another, and berating them and saying, "Well, I'll you know support this measure if you give me this interview if I'm allowed to come and see Tony Blair." Um, and, but, but at the same time, when Downing Street objects to how they've been covered uh, in the newspaper, he just says, well, why are you taking it so seriously? You know, it's just an article. So he tries to have it both ways, and I think, I think that is a kind of undercurrent sometimes of the press here. Uh, it may be that this, what's going on now is changing that to some extent. I mean, it's very interesting that the Daily Mail has started running a corrections column, which they never had before. You know, before they either say, you don't like it, sue us, or, you know, who cares if we spell your name right? Who cares if we said you had four kids when you only had two kids? You know, those are just little facts that don't really matter. Um, you also know this, this uh, that the tabloids would trade uh, access for good coverage. So in other words, and, and they would blackmail people so that if you had a celebrity and someone on a tabloid had uncovered some kind of scandal, they would often go to the celebrity and say, well, we won't run this piece about your three in a bed romp 
if you give us an exclusive interview about your new home or your baby or your movie or whatever it is. So a lot of people felt really compromised by these newspapers. Um, and then you notice that the, the tabloids would pay people for information, which is something I would, you know, I was taught never to do. I would never do that. I, I mean, I can barely, I'm barely allowed to take them out for coffee, let alone give them actual money. Um, and the money they would pay would be for usually sleazy sex stories, you know, not often really good, good stories. Occasionally that would happen, but um, I was really struck a number of years ago, I went to something called the British Press Awards. And it's, I thought it would be like a Pulitzer Prize in the United States, where it's, you know, like a lot of people sort of really proud to accept these awards because of their good journalism. And I didn't realize what a political minefield it was. It was essentially tabloids versus broadsheets, and then the Murdoch tabloids versus the other tabloids. Everyone got really drunk. And people only cheered for the people from their own paper or their sister paper who won awards, and they would boo at the other people. And it became clear that the judges had, had to really be careful in awarding kind of half the awards to the tabloids and half to the broadsheets, because the tabloids would make such a fuss. And I guess one year, some tabloid editor stormed on stage and started screaming that the tabloids hadn't gotten any awards. And the year that I was there, the News of the World, which is now closed down, won Newspaper of the Year and Scoop of the Year. And the type of stories that they won for were, um, for example, paying this woman something like 200,000 pounds to reveal the details of her affair with David Beckham. And it was a complete, you know, mercenary exchange. They outbid other people. They put her up in a hotel. They kept her away from everyone. And they paid her for this story. And they won an award for that. And it was just shocking for me to see that. <laughs> Um, and, and also just the raucousness. You know, at that point, everyone was so drunk, and all the news of the world people got on the chairs and the table, and they were all screaming and applauding. It was like being in an animal house or something. And another year, Jeremy Clarkson, who's that guy on top here, who's a kind of celebrity, was feuding with Piers Morgan again, who was editor of the, the Mirror, because Clark, because the Mirror had run some story about Clarkson having an affair with somebody. So he was really mad at the mirror for doing that. And he actually had a fist fight with Piers Morgan in the hallway outside the wards. You know, in the middle of this thing, and you think the Pulitzer or some British Press Awards, it's all kind of weird. So, so that was sort of the backdrop. You know, it's, and I guess you also think, um, you know, there aren't, there are too many papers in an odd way for, there's not enough news for this amount of papers. And, and that's part of the problem. I think the papers are so competitive with each other that they have to, you know, do the best they can to attract readers, and, and a lot of them have decided to go down market. And even the more respectable papers, like the Telegraph, almost always will have a picture of some attractive woman on the cover, you know, just every day, just for whatever reason, just to get people to buy the paper. And I guess the feeling seems to be that the audience is people who like frivolous, gossipy stories. They're possibly a growth market to the extent there is a growth market. <coughs> And I don't know if you all read the Daily Mail website. That's now the most you know watched or whatever viewed website in the world, and they really trade on who's fat, who's thin, who lost weight, who's flaunting. They never like wear a bikini; they flaunt their body in a bikini in that in that website. So it's worth taking a look at because that's in a way what the press, who they're trying to attract now. But everything sort of came crashing down 
um, over this phone hacking incident. And I don't know how well you followed it all, but if I'm giving too many details that you know already, please just tell me to give fewer and I will. But it's, you know, it's, it's very um, instructive how it all came about. Um, the first thing that happened was in 2008, and I actually covered this, and it was sort of in that thing. This, there was this little story where the um, News of the World uh, royal reporter had been arrested, and they said he had listened in illegally on phone calls of members of the royal family. And an investigator had also been arrested. And it was things like, you know, they were writing about what Prince William thought about something, or he heard his leg skiing, you know, incredibly stupid stuff. And they were actually convicted and sentenced to a couple months in prison each. And then the whole thing went away. Like, nobody really made an effort to look into it more. But again, it seemed like it was just one of those things that British reporters do, and everyone knows it. So these people got caught, but, you know, that's sort of it. And then, a couple of years later, The Guardian suddenly ran this piece. And you have to remember that The Guardian would be, you know, every paper is a competitor of each other. So whenever they run articles about each other, there's also an element of we're slamming the competition as much as we're doing good journalism. And that always complicates the way all these things are covered. Anyway, they did a really good piece about um, not only this report that had come out that people hadn't really paid attention to, talking about the extent of kind of surveillance and using private investigators and listening in on things that reporters had, but also they wrote a piece about um, this really interesting case that came up right around the time of that um, court case in which the news of the world and, and the Murdoch people paid off a guy who was um, suing, saying that his phone had been hacked and he was uh, uh, had evidence of that, and they paid him um, eight hundred thousand pounds, which is a ton of money, and then covered it up. And this guy was head of the head of the football association, so pretty big official, and he had evidence that they were listening in on his phone in order to write articles about his private life, essentially. Um, so the Guardian ran this story, really interesting story. Um, and it kind of died because none of the other papers wanted to take on the Murdochs. The Murdoch press said, you know, we're not going to talk about this. And it was, you know, it wasn't really true. And there was, you know, we have no evidence. There were other people phone hacking. So, and then they slammed the Guardian saying, it's sour grapes. You hate us because you're jealous of us. And so it kind of went away, which is very frustrating to the Guardian. And meanwhile, the things were sort of digging along, The Guardian did some more pieces about this. And every single time, the Murdoch people, all the News of the World people, and News International, every time they were asked about it, they'd say, no phone hacking. It was limited to one rogue reporter of the paper, this royal guy who'd been in jail. And it's you know outrageous that you'd suggest otherwise. But that's all. They said it over and over again. They said it to Parliament. They said it to the police. They said it to other reporters. So it kind of went away. And then that all kind of started to change in 2010. The Guardian had kept doing stories. Then our sent over an investigative team from New York who did a big uh, investigation and found a bunch of people at the News of the World who said they had you know, seen editors phone hacking and seen that it was prevalent. And, and that started getting some attention because it was from an outsider and you know we're, we don't have a dog in the fight, as it were. Although we sort of do, because the New York Times this competes with the Wall Street Journal, which is also owned by Rupert Murdoch. So there was that kind of um, factor that just made it a little more complicated. But still, it was a very good piece. 
And about the same time, there was a few more civil suits coming through the, the courts where other people claimed their phones had been hacked. And as a result, the police had to start looking at the investigation more seriously. They had refused to, to investigate before. Um, and all of a sudden, this new evidence came out. And it turned out that the investigator who had been arrested and jailed in 2008 had groups of notebooks that constitute about 20,000, 12,000 pages of information about people who had ordered him to phone hack at the News of the World. And the police had had all this evidence sitting there for two years, just in like bags in police stations. So suddenly, the company knew that it, there was all this evidence coming, and they suddenly changed. They said, oh wait, it wasn't just a rogue reporter. It may have been other people too. So we're going to now cooperate with the investigation. And that was in December. 2010. In January 2011, they uh, deleted a whole bunch of emails. And then about a week after that, two weeks after that, the police officially opened their investigation and News International said, oh, we'll give you all our information. And this is after it's turned out they seem to have not had all their information. Um, and then, you know, all this other stuff happened. Um, the guy who had been editor of News of the World had already resigned over the first group of, you know, in 2008, but he had been hired immediately by David Cameron, who's now the Prime Minister, to be his chief spokesman. And that was another kind of example to me of how the, the press and the police and the uh, government would collude in this bizarre system. I mean, the News of the World was, is the sleaziest paper imaginable, in my opinion. And here was a respectable guy from, from the kind of family values uh, political party saying, I want to essentially get in bed with these tabloid people because they can help me uh, promote my ties with the Murdochs, get better coverage by the tabloids. And I don't care that he's a sleazy guy who works for a sleazy paper. I'd rather have him be my sleazy guy than someone else's sleazy guy. So he hired him knowing that he had possibly been involved in his phone hacking. And so that got um, sort of heated up last year when all this was going on. And so that guy, Andy Colson, resigned from Downing Street, where he had then gone to work as the chief spokesman of the prime minister. This is a guy, again, who worked for the news of the world, was like the chief spokesman of the government. It was insane. So then, if things were sort of taking long, but it wasn't until this incredible moment last summer where suddenly The Guardian again reported that among the people who were victims of phone hacking was this family of Millie Dowler, who'd been kidnapped and murdered by a, by a bad person <laughs> some years back. And they had evidence that the News of the World had hacked into her phone after she was kidnapped and listened to all her messages. And there also seemed to be some question as to whether or not, because they had done this, they had erased some of the messages so no one could hear them. And at the same time, given hope to both the police and Millie Dollar's parents that she was still alive because they would call the message themselves and the messages would already have been listened to. So they thought she was listening to her own messages. So when that happened, all of a sudden it was like the floodgates opened. And it was kind of interesting because it happened around the same time that there was a new prime minister in Ireland who suddenly got up in Parliament and attacked the Catholic Church for covering up child abuse. And it was the first time in Ireland anyone had ever, in Parliament, a, a politician, ever said anything like that. It was like this extraordinary moment where they finally said, enough is enough. And the exact same thing was happening here, but it was with the press and with the Murdochs. 
So all of a sudden, you've got this extraordinary um, day after day of hearings in Parliament where people who'd been afraid of the tabloids, and especially afraid of the Murdoch press, got up and started saying, um, this is what they did to me when I tried to criticize them. This is how they blackmailed me. Um, I hate them. You know, they're scourge on society. You know, really, really, really strong. And it was, you know, and people got up and said things like, I, I criticized some Murdoch policy, and then they wrote five stories about my personal life. You know, one guy who'd been mar marginally critical, they found like a website where he had advertised for boyfriend wearing his underpants, you know, he was not a closeted gay, he was gay, and they just, you know, went after him and did these mean stories about him. And suddenly people felt free to say that. But then it became clear that they were so, um, you know, it, the, the ties had gone so deep that not only had they been afraid of and hated the Murdochs, but they'd had to pander to them at the same time. So there was an amazing moment where the former prime minister, Gordon Brown, got up. He hadn't really gone much to Parliament after he left office and was a kind of dour and tortured figure. And he got up and gave what many people thought was one of the best you know, statements he'd ever made in Parliament, where he told this incredibly moving story about how his newborn son had been diagnosed with, um, I think, cystic fibrosis. And he, was, he got a call from the editor of the News of the World uh, Rebecca Brooks saying, we have this story about your, your son and we're going to run it. And he said, and I started crying on the telephone. And I said, please don't run it. And she ran it anyway. Very, very sad. And then it became clear that he then, some months later, went to her wedding. You know, that's how kind of frightened people were of these people, that they would, you know, be so hurt and so damaged, but then have to pander to them at the same time. So it wasn't just the government, it was all politicians. And it turned out, you know, they kept going to the News International parties. They kept going, you know, having them in for meetings. You know, everybody was doing it. And suddenly they were saying, we're casting off our shackles. We don't want to do this anymore. And then you had this amazing series of event after event. It was really weird, hard to cover it because like three things would happen each day when usually only one would be enough. So, the um, head of News International, Rebecca Brooks, resigned. Then the former head of News International, Les Hinton, resigned. Then the police chief resigned. Then someone else, um, another high police official, resigned. Then they shut down the news of the world completely. They said, it's too um, contaminated now. We're going to close down you know, the most profitable newspaper in, in all of, of Britain. Um, and then. Oh, and then uh, News International had to withdraw its bid to take over the rest of this big broadcast of BSKB. And this was all within about two weeks. So it was extraordinary. And then the police had to start getting really involved. And they were compromised because it was clear they were colluding with News International. So police officers would resign from the force and go and work for, uh, like, the Times. Uh, they'd write a column, they'd get paid. So that it was just an extraordinary series of events. And since then, we've essentially been seeing the fallout of it. Um, we've been seeing you know, a huge police investigation. There are now at least three, I think maybe four, police investigations. One into phone hacking, one into uh, computer hacking, one into bribing the police. And I forget what the fourth one was. And they all have these weird names. And that's because they're, uh, it's generated randomly from the computer. So you see this thing, Operation Toledo. And that's like some made-up word that the computer spit out. 
So that's going on. At least 20 people have been arrested. No one's been criminally charged yet, but it looks like that'll start happening soon. There's been this big public inquiry led by a former judge, Judge, Le judge Levison, that, again, <coughs> is a very interesting kind of cultural contrast between the witnesses from the tabloids who are talking about their reporting methods and these very proper people in this, in this hearing room who are basically cannot believe what they're hearing. And what's kind of interesting about it is that, again, everybody knew this was going on. And until recently, they all just thought it was fine. They thought it was fine to phone hack. They thought it was fine to follow people around. They thought it was fine to make these terrible deals. And all these people who always said it was fine to each other and themselves are now having to say, this is awful, and I can't believe we did this, and I'm shocked. You know, it's like in Casablanca when the guy says he's shocked to hear about the gambling. You know, they're shocked to hear that they did this stuff all along, is what's kind of happening. There have been a few witnesses who've come on and said, you know, we did this, and it was really fun, and this is how you get stories, and blah, blah, blah. But they're, you know, it's like they're from another planet at this point. Um, and you know, and the worry is in a society that is a very, as I said before, very closed. It has very strict libel laws. It's quite hard to um, report things that are um, that that stir government too much because you really could get in, in legal trouble. Um, the worry is now that some draconian regulation will be imposed on the press as a result of all this, and things will be worse for everybody. So it's a very interesting time where everything's been sort of thrown up in the air. Everything's for grabs. And we don't know what's going to happen. Levison has a lot more to do before he writes his report. He's the judge. Parliament is about to produce a report. The police are continuing their investigation. And then Rupert Murdoch comes along and does this extraordinary thing where he announces that he's going to start a new newspaper. You know, and, and what's going on, the Murdoch family is really interesting because he's the big newspaper lover, but he's now 82 years old. He's not going to stay around for long. His family does not love newspapers. They feel really tarnished by what's happened here. They would just as soon have them all sold off, as far as I can tell. And he's suddenly saying, we're going to start a new newspaper. And he suddenly put his weight behind his journalists at the same time as his company has said pledge to provide all the evidence that the police need and to cooperate fully, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very, very interesting time. And uh, I'm happy to take questions. Thank you very much. <laughs>